Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Good morning and Shabbat Shalom. It's so good to see you all here at Learning. I'm Rabbi Nick Renner, and I'm filling in for Rabbi Bernstein to all of you out there who are in podcast land, not in this room at the moment, but for all of you who are in this room, good morning, and it's a pleasure to be with all of you today. As I mentioned, we are in Parashat Ki Tisa. This is the Parsha of the famous golden calf story. Those of you who are on the board got to hear a little bit of that last night at the board meeting. Um, But we're actually not going to start with that. We are going to jump forward to a completely different experience that we have in this week's Parsha, something really... Just like in Aaron's reading, the golden calf sprung fully formed out of the furnace, just jumped out like that. We're going to jump forward in our Parsha. We're going to read from chapter 33... Chapter 33, we're in the book of Exodus, verse 12. 33, 12. I appreciate Bert helping everyone navigate all of this stuff, too. Uh, If I can get a brave volunteer, we're going to read verses 12 through 23, just a section of this chapter. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, lead this people forward, but you've not made known to me whom you will send with me. Further you have said, I have singled you out by name, and you have indeed gained my favor. Now, if I have truly gained your favor, pray let me know your ways that I may know you and continue in your favor. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, I will go in the lead and will lighten your burden. And he said to him, unless you go in the lead, do not make us leave this place, for how shall it be known that your people have gained your favor unless you go with us? so that we may be distinguished, your people and I, from every people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have asked, for you have truly gained my favor, and I have singled you out by name. He said, Oh, let me behold your presence. And he answered, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name Lord, and the grace that I grant and the compassion that I show. But he said, You cannot see my face, for men may not see me and live. And the Lord said, See, there is a place near me. Station yourself on the rock, and as my presence passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Okay. Thank you, Bert. Questions, thoughts, response? Go ahead. This is having to do with grammar. And yes. I'd like to know the translation from the Hebrew in the Green Book. Okay. Uh, so uh, Bert was reading I was from, from the Hertz. Okay. Right. And Bert was reading from the Red Book. He, it says, um, I think, verse 14. Verse 14, all right. In the Green Book it said, and God said, I believe in the Red Book it said, and he said... Mm-hmm. So there are a number of times in the Red Book that the name of God is referred to with a he. Mm-hmm. So that's my question. I usually see God and rarely see God referred to as he, which is kind of a simple pronoun. Mm-hmm. What is the actual translation? Conservative translation. 
It doesn't specify a name of God. You can tell who it's talking about, but it's just saying, and, yeah, literally, and he said, Vayomer. Um, Vayomer. So, this question of gender and God. Uh, this is one of the challenges we run into with Hebrew. Hebrew is a gendered language, much more so than English. Everything winds up with a gender pretty much in Hebrew, from tables to chairs, things that uh, don't logically have any kind of gender attached to them. Um, what one of my Israeli friends said, who is a feminist, I once asked her about it, and she said, yeah... It's true there's gender, she said, but my experience of it is that it sort of fades away into this binary, this A-B way of thinking about and classifying words. She said, so my experience of a lot of these things is not even gendered, even though I know intellectually somewhere in my mind it is, which I thought was an interesting commentary on this idea that when everything becomes gendered, that for her then the gendered piece of the language faded away. Um, that's just one take. Uh, like I said, from an Israeli woman who is my age, who is, considers herself to be a feminist. But um, it's hard to get around the gender of it. So in this case, Vayomer is, and he said um, in the Hebrew. So I appreciate, though, that the women's Torah commentary is working to take gender out of it. Um, it's French, in, French is like that. Yeah. I think Spanish. And, you know, table and table. Right, but it has, it has nothing to do with male and female people. And there's no relationship between what is masculine and what is feminine in the words mm -hmm. and people or their character. It's all the Latin languages. Yeah, all the Latin languages, right. right. So. I mean, chair, chair and table are both feminine. Is there a, is there a, a neuter? Is there a third? No. No. There are no words. No. German, German has three. German has three. Interesting. So an interesting commentary on these words and the way in which we ascribe human qualities to them, which takes us right into this passage, into what happens here. As my presence passes by, I will shield you with my hand, and then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face not, must not be seen. What do you make of this? Footprints in the sand. Footprints in the sand. Say more. You can see footprints. Okay. You know someone was there. Okay. But you have not seen them. So <clears throat> I've always understood that is, <clears throat> excuse me, we can see the effect of God on earth and in our lives, mm -hmm. but we can't directly see God. You can't directly perceive right. it. Right. Like you can't see electricity. Mm-hmm. We can see these lights are on, mm -hmm. right? Okay. But we can't see the electricity. You can feel it. Though. You can feel it, right? You can you you can feel it. You can feel its presence. You can feel it in your body. Right. It's like uh -huh. or wind. Mm -hmm. there, there's a great book by um, Lawrence Kushner mm -hmm. called When Children Ask About God, mm -hmm. and he talks about how you can explain to kids that something can be real and invisible. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, if you ask a small child what is in, what do we know is there but is invisible, they can come up with a lot of things. And one of the first things they come up with is wind. Mm -hmm. Very good. All right, yeah, go ahead. Uh, is this the 
the root of the concept that we do not personalize God, that we do not make God and make God an image. So, I I mean, I'm asking the question because I think it's it's uh, it's I think intellectually and spiritually challenging mm-hmm. not to be able to, so that the individual can imagine what relates to them personally. So I think that some of that prohibition, getting away from God images, uh, is about differentiating and separating out from uh, idol worship and other pagan religious practices at the time. Because we see over and over and over again, you shall not make idols of God before you. And all of these different pieces... um, urging us away from idol worship and all of these things. And then we also know from archaeology that people and families and family groups and clans had their own little individual shrines that it seems like the priesthood was trying to get rid of um, and that that was a widespread thing. So I think that it comes more in that tension with some of uh, pagan religious worship, but I think that this is very much a spiritual riff on that same idea. But it is congruent because yes. Moses couldn't see anything, he couldn't project it back to the people, and they couldn't, you know, build up around that right. idol of their own. Absolutely, I think that's uh, totally true, yeah. And maybe I'm too literal because it says you can see my back, so okay. going the other way, well, I'm really scratching my head, well, I can see your back, then that's... Since when does God have a back? What a strange thing like that to say. It may mean my past. Ah, this is an interesting reading of it. And the coming of my past forward. So that reminds me of God naming God's self as Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh. I will be that which I will be. Um, A lovely way of... you're going to bring temporality into it and progression of time in that way. I think that's a lovely way to render uh, what back is. Yeah. And recalling what Rabbi Amy mm-hmm. said the last time we went over this passage, which I found to be so emotional mm-hmm. and tender, was that God recognized if Moses or a human were actually to experience God's physical or God's presence, it mm-hmm. would be so overwhelming it could be fatal. Okay. And the whole act of protecting Moses in this corner of the rock mm-hmm. is so paternal in a way. Mm. And so I just found that... Or maternal to you. <laughs> Parental to <laughs> render it in the... Yeah, neuter. <laughs> <laughs> I just found that midrash. Yeah. So Beautiful. Bert, did you want to jump in? Quick correction. The book I mentioned was by Harold Kushner, not Lawrence Kushner. For the record. Totally different people. Thank you, Bert. (laughs) Sorry. I'd like to make one comment. Yes, please. The pagan languages, or religions. Yes. There are still religions that use images. Oh, yeah. Very Mm -hmm. vigorously. And that might not consider themselves pagan. Exactly. Um, 100%. I speak about it in terms of the tension of what we see in Tanakh and the Hebrew Bible in particular, but if you look at, say, a lot of the iconography of Eastern Orthodox Christianity, there's a lot of imagery. Hinduism, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at a lot of the uh, Muslim anger, for example, at this cartoon, of making a, you know, Jews don't seem to have, even though we don't do it, we don't seem to have a huge problem of people making pictures that allegedly 
for God, but in Islam, that is a major bad thing. We don't find it as transgressive, even right. if we are commanded not to do it. Like we have, for instance, I think about those lovely uh, stained glass windows of Marc Chagall mm-hmm. that you can see in Hadassah Hospital, that these are images that are religiously inspired, that come out of the themes of um, Tanakh and Hebrew Bible, but we, you know, but we're comfortable with that. It doesn't feel like it's towing a line to us, you know. We, we generally don't have that in synagogues. Though we generally don't have it in synagogues, that's true. Although there are all kinds of strange exceptions to every rule I'm sure that you can find. Does anybody see what word gets used for God's presence? Those of you who can play in a little bit of the Hebrew... Tell you what it says down here. Yeah, go ahead. It says kavod. Kavod. Very good. Kavod. Does somebody want to take a stab at translating kavod? Significance. Okay, Heaviness. significance. I always Wait. like that best. It's translated glory all the time, but that's yep. a very Christian feeling word. Gravitas. Gravitas. Ooh, I like that word a lot because that gets it both. Uh, the significance of it, as well as that it is etymologically connected to weight, to heaviness. Kaved literally means something that's heavy. Um, what do you think? How would you? I like gravitas in the way it. I like the way it linguistically works, but it's hard to say to talk about God's gravitas. <laughs> as much as I like what it linguistically does, how it fits bridges those meanings. How? How do you think presence works here? In, yeah. In Yiddish, we use it as for honor. Okay. To, to, uh, to acquire honors. Mm. COVID. COVID. Very good. In Hebrew, contemporary Hebrew, if you want to say to somebody, hey, nice job, that's that's great. Kolakavod. All the respect, all the honor, all of the weight to you. Kol hakavod. All of the kavod to you, um, if you're wanting to say, hey, nice job, you know. So it's interesting that we are dealing in God's kavod. So what is God's kavod then? What is we, this? We also use that all the time right after the Shema, because we say, Baruch Shem kavod malchuto le'elam boed. That's right. May God's fill in the blank yeah. be forever or God's blank. Mm-hmm. I always like, and I heard Rabbi Dorf talk mm-hmm. about this, significance or importance because it really to me it's always said it's heavy it's Mm -hmm. weighty it's important and doesn't necessarily relate to something reflected off of being nice so I want to get a little bit into what could God's kavod be? As you might imagine, the rabbis have an absolute field day with this piece because it begs the question. It is ambiguous. It is a little bit strange, and it does begin to push at the limits of what we can sort of experientially uh, relate to. Um, was that uh, over here when you were talking about the things that you experience um, that you don't see but you still experience, this is exactly what Ibn Ezra says. He's a uh, medieval commentator, medieval rabbi. He says that it's not physical, that it's like light, actually. That God's kavod is very much like light, that you would be able to feel the warmth of it even if you're not actually seeing the actual rays from it. Okay. Presence. Um, two other takes on this. Uh, Maimonides and another rabbi named Radak 
they say that this is about an intellectual perception. It's about perceiving God, an understanding of God, that how could you come to some kind of a rationalization about God? Maimonides loves all of this rationalizing. He's very into this stuff. He thinks that prophecy, in fact, that if you had a perfect rational understanding of the world, you could achieve prophecy. If you had a perfect rational understanding of the workings of things, you would be able to predict the future. Kind of makes sense. But it's very... Yeah, go ahead. If you believe that the past is a prediction of the future, too, okay, that would lead you to a perfect understanding of history, which is what we're trying to do here. Right. Which would lead us to a more secure feeling of the future. Okay, very much the Maimonidean take on it. Um, very contrary to what the Talmud says about prophecy and these kinds of experience of the divine. Yes, that's right. Uh, The Talmud famously says that a dream is one-sixtieth of a prophecy, that these glimmers of things that are a bit beyond our understanding, um, they don't go in the rational direction with it at all. Um, Other thoughts about that, the kavod as intellectual perception. Yeah. Well, I'm just contrasting it to the golden calf. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, it was beautiful, it was real, it was something you could really perceive. And this is a much higher level intellectual activity mm-hmm. to actually perceive something without seeing it. So mm-hmm. I think it, it sort of stretches our intellectual um, ability and, and, and aspiration. And it's something only humans have. Animals don't have this intellectual reach okay. beyond. Yeah, go ahead. If God is outside of anything we can perceive, mm-hmm. outside of the rational, how could we arrive to my rational? Okay. That a great challenge to the Maimonidean take. And so this is where Maimonides his he would say that, well, that's what makes Moses the greatest prophet who ever lived, is that Moses was the one who could rationally arrive at it, and the only one. Excellent question. Um, I'm not sure that Maimonides. I'm trying to think of my readings of Rambam if I have something, some pearl of his. We see the results. Okay. Not the immediate action. Say a little more. I don't know what else there is to say. We we see the after effects of mm-hmm. God's act. We have Moses, mm-hmm. and that's an after effect for us. We, mm-hmm. we were not there. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to be there to see the effects of Moses and of all of our history. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's an intellectual mixed with a soul revelation. But what's the value of that if we can't project and feel ourselves as if we're in the story? We're the ones that are wanting to understand what was actually happening. I think so we, we think have to realize that we're separate from it is one way perhaps that mm-hmm. we achieve something like that rationally. We are and we aren't. We are separate from it by ration, by our reason, but we're not separate because we still feel those actions in ourselves. So we could also take this in the opposite direction and not go the route of the rational the rational way into this. And why do they have to be separate? They don't necessarily have to be. Um, just, I'm just giving, I'm wanting to offer a range of rabbinic takes on this because there's certainly no consensus on what this is. Um, 
On the other end of this, there is Ramban, with an N, Nachmanides, who thinks that there is actually a divine face, that there is a way to experience God in this human way that we are made, after all, B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God. And so the way into connecting with God would be to connect with this face, as it were. And so Nachmanides is much more comfortable thinking about God in anthropomorphic ways and relating to God, perhaps, in anthropomorphic ways, more so than thinking about it. Um, Rashi, for the 11th century uh, French commentator, he... Uh, he says that this is looking at the back of God's tefillin. Anybody knows what tefillin are? That the ones that you wrap around the arm and you have on the head, that looking at God's back is to look at that knot in the back of the one that fits on your head, is to see the straps dangling down the back of the one wearing it. It is this very experiential sort of way of into this image of God. And not for nothing... Rashi's daughters were also famous for having been uh, this example of women who wore tefillin, even though that's right, even though today in Orthodox communities there's this prohibition against women wearing tefillin and praying with them, the famous rejoinder to that is, well, Rashi's daughters always Mm -hmm. wore tefillin, so perhaps how beautiful that Rashi looks at the back and sees the back of the tefillin in that way. Um, What he saw was women participating, which was that step over to the direct contrary to the, the, the best mm-hmm. way to make a feminist is to have daughters. <laughs> 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 That's a beautiful word about Rashi. <laughs> the, uh, That's right. Rabbi, yeah. Sorry, I, I saw the Rita had her hand, so I wanted to. Oh, I was just going to say, it occurred to me that if you're looking at somebody's back, you really won't know if it's a male or a female, so maybe that's all mm-hmm. you do the whole thing. Another beautiful way of uh, rendering it. That's lovely. Bert, yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs mm-hmm. has written that the the divine God, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. is beyond words. And that any words that we use, we're Hebrew, English, or yep. whatever, can only roughly reflect that. Mm-hmm. But, he says, language is all we have. Yep. So we, as human beings, we create language, but mm-hmm. we, we, in his view, we can't confuse our language with the reality. Okay. And I think that some of us, you know, if you've seen a baby being born, mm-hmm. you see a sunset or whatever that experience is, and you look, and there's no words. Mm-hmm. You're just sensing something. We're, we're animals. We're human beings. Mm-hmm. And so, but we have no choice. Beautiful. So if we want to talk about it, we've got to use words, but we have to understand yeah. they're just approximations. Okay. The limitations, um, and this could get us into almost semiotic directions about the relationship between the thing being signified and its signifier, the, li- the limitations in our language to signify um, in that way. Yeah, go ahead. I, I think that when we're talking about belief or spirituality that it lives someplace in the place between rationalism and and I think that's why people who why you give weight to the dreamer or the prophesizer Mm. or the seer it has more gravitas than the rational because it bespeaks of something that's otherworldly that gap is where art and music yes that gap is where I would suggest mysticism comes in too. That gap is the 
uh, yeah, is the generative place of the Kabbalah. Um, yeah. I'd like to tell my favorite joke. Go ahead. <laughs> Mrs. Green is a first grade teacher, and she decides to have an art session with her students. And she's walking around looking at the at the work, and she stops at Katie's desk, and she says, "Katie, what are you drawing?" She says, "Oh, I'm drawing God." But Katie, nobody knows what God looks like. She said they will in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, we have this, uh, I love it, I love it. Thank you for sharing. We have this challenge, really, in trying to understand and describe God with the limitation of our language. The rabbis, they have all kinds of images they give us. Think about uh, the high holidays. We have this whole long prayer of Vinu Malkenu, our parent our sovereign to render it in the uh to render out the gender of avinu malkenu um there's even a discussion in talmud i think it's in one of the bhavas bhava batra bhava kama one of these where they discuss they have this whole meandering discussion of the dimensions of god and god's body parts and god's facial features and uh measuring out the size of God's facial features. Well, then you have Maimonides, on the other hand, who says that um, if you actually believed that God was a father or king in the Avinu Malkenu language, you would be a heretic because you would be limiting what God could potentially be with those things. If you say that God is those two things, parent and sovereign, well, God can't be all of these other things then. So what you've done is heretical. Uh, so Maimonides says that what you're doing with those things is really trying to find a human way in, but you're not supposed to actually believe them. You use them as a rhetorical device. It reflects, the again, like Bert was saying, the limitation of our language, but uh, you're not supposed to actually believe that as the reality of it. Um, it's a tricky business, this business of describing and relating to God, as we see. Um, any other thoughts or observations on this? Because we're going to move along and see a little bit more here. Nobody's mentioned the word love. Okay, go ahead. Something that we cannot see. Okay. We feel it somehow, but we don't, it's not a sense. But it is, it's the ultimate manifestation to me. Very good. So we have Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Lord our God is one. Well, how are we supposed to make any sense of that in reality? Ve'ahavta, and you shall love. That the first way to make any sense of that one central line, that creed of uh, Judaism, the Shema, the only way you make sense of that is ve'ahavta. Mm-hmm. That's your way into it. That's how you can access that. Um, I think that's absolutely right. A number of years ago, there was a debate between two prominent conservative rabbis, mm-hmm. Rabbi Dorf and Rabbi Artson. Yeah about their different concepts of God. And Rabbi Dorf was very much of the school of anthropomorphism, that mm-hmm. is, talking about God in, in more human language. Mm-hmm. And Rabbi Artson was very much closer to the Reconstructionist idea, absolutely not talk about he or, or anything of that sort. And in the end, it got down to Rabbi Dorf said, uh, what Rabbi Artson said, I... I it, what you're saying, to think of God in human terms or having an arm or whatever is limiting to God. And Rabbi Dorf said, I can't pray to a force. Mm-hmm. So, And these are two prominent rabbis. These guys are real theological and intellectual heavy hitters. Um, and Rabbi Artson is very much picking up sort of the mantle of the Reconstructionist tradition. Mordechai Kaplan famously saying that God is the process that makes for salvation. Um, 
God is a process in the world. Uh, and then you have the limitation of that. Uh, it's very difficult if if prayer becomes, for some people, a lot more difficult if you can't use anthropomorphic language. But the thing is, if you say Avinu Malkeno, for example, mm-hmm. do you actually believe that literally or are you using it metaphorically? So... One of my instructors, Rabbi Gail Diamond of the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem, she said, and she's a specialist on the early rabbinic era, is her field of study, and she said that scholars think this is part of the reason that the early Christian movement was so successful, is it had this personification to it that made it incredibly accessible in contrast, Jesus, in contrast to the rabbinic project, which... We all know, those of you who study Talmud with me, is not the most accessible thing you can imagine. Um, yeah, go ahead. That's and why we talk about struggle. Yeah. Other religions don't talk about struggle. They, call, they talk about obedience, obeying, seeing something in, in one certain way. But Jews don't talk about that. I wonder, that's a really fascinating observation, that we have this idea of machloket l'shem shemaim, argument for the sake of heaven, that that's considered not only permissible but virtuous. Um, I wonder if that is related to some of the abstraction in how we hold divinity. That's a lovely... Yisrael. Yisrael, the one who struggles with God. Yeah, go ahead, Linda. That that almost seems like it's the transition point between the actual presence of the idols Mm -hmm. to the points that Christianity were trying to make, but... Um, in between there is is the transition from the actual pieces of clay or whatever mm-hmm. the idols were to the next step. All right, very good. Um, yeah. The most important thing in conversion for me yeah. is that <laughs> whoever I worked with most intensively not only questioned me on what I believe, he argued with me, but he wanted me to argue with him. Yes. That certainly was not what I'd gotten to Christianity. And it was so exciting to yeah. think you can argue yes. about what the words mean and what the belief is. It's not only permissible, it is virtuous. It was really Yes, 100%. So, I want to move us along a little bit. Uh, this is really interesting because we have other times when the kavod of God is present. And people experience the kavod of God. But there are three things that always mark a revelation of this kavod of God. Um, And this episode is remarkable, bless you. This episode is remarkable in that it seems to violate all three of them. One, all these other episodes of it, it's a mass experience. It's the whole people all seeing the glory of God on the mountain or some such. Two, it's distant from the observers. It happens far off. You see it projected against the sky, against the mountain. And three, God initiates it. God chooses the time and the place of all three of these, um, of these, uh, of these uh, revelations of that kavod. This is different because A, it's only Moses. Moses is the only one. B, it, there's an immediacy to it. You talk about that tenderness to Moses being held in this moment. It's very, very intimate in this sense. And three, uh, Moses initiates it. Moses is the one that says, show me. It's not God making this decision that I'm going to reveal this kavod to him. Any thoughts about that? How would you compare this with Abraham's argument with God? Which is also kind of 
very, very direct. Very good. Uh, that's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. And we just got Moses arguing with God very recently in the Golden Calf episode. God wants to uh, go and schmice the whole people for what they have done with this Golden Calf thing. And Moses says, what? So that other people and other gods and would say you just brought them out of Egypt to ax them? To the off other them? thing that's funny is we have Moses talking to God... I don't mm-hmm. know. I think of that. It's kind of face to face, and then God says, mm-hmm. "You can't see my face." Yeah, absolutely. We are going to jump forward to chapter thirty-four. First. At the beginning of chapter thirty-four, I want to invite somebody to read through verse six. The Lord said to Moses, carve two tablets of stone like the first, and I will ascribe upon the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you shattered. Be ready by morning, and in the morning come up to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one else shall come up with you, and no one else shall be seen anywhere on the mountain, neither shall the flocks and the herds graze at the foot of the mountain. So Moses carved two tablets of stone like the first, and early in the morning he went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, taking the two stone tablets with him. The Lord came down in a cloud. He stood with him there and proclaimed the name Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Adonai, Adonai, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in kindness and faithfulness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he does not remit all punishment, but visits the iniquity of parents upon children and children's children upon the third and fourth generation. Okay, so here we get that famous piece of liturgy, Adonai, Adonai, Rachum Vechanun, from the High Holidays. We're going to fast forward now because we're going to have a whole bunch of legal prescriptions. I just want to let you know that's what we're skipping over. Jump to verse 29. And if I can get a brave volunteer to read from verse 29 through the end of the chapter. I'm going to step out of the room for just a second while you okay. read that. Okay. If somebody wants to read from 29 to the end of so the Moses came I'll down right from back. So Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and as Moses came down from the mountain bearing the two tablets of the pact, Moses was not aware that the skin of his face was radiant since he had spoken with Adonai. Aaron and all the Israelites saw that the skin of Moses' face was radiant, and they shrank from coming near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the chieftains in the assembly returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he instructed them concerning all that the Lord had imparted to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would leave the veil off until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, the Israelites would see how radiant the skin of Moses' face was. Moses would then pull the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with him. And while we're waiting for the return of our Rebbe, I will mention this is the source, the misreading of the Hebrew is the source of the idea that Jews have horns. 
Uh, horns. Because, excuse me. It's a rays of light. Well, the the and um, Karen. Karen and Karen, which there there's no vowels in the in in the Torah. What is translated here as radiant with light was mistranslated, I think, in the Middle Ages. Somebody help me on this. As horns. Yes. That Moses came down and he was horned. And there you have seen, I think it's Michelangelo, did a very famous statue of Moses with horns. I know that my wife, in Texas actually, uh, many, many years ago with some people and revealed the fact that she was Jewish. And one of the people said, well, where are you horned? He was the first Jewish person. And Rabbi Renner will now, is it Karen and Karen? Is that the mistranslation? So Karen, this horn piece, yes, that's right. That is the source of some of this strangeness, that this radiating light seems to be come from horn, etymologically. Uh, the rabbis have no idea what to do with this, I'll tell you right now. Um, there is discussion about whether light is horn-like in nature in that it projects forward. Another rabbi, um, I believe it was Gersonides, said that, look, this is just a word that has multiple meanings to it. Like, well, don't it try and connect them. Does it say horn? Because I had read that was a misreading of the vowels. Or, it, or it does say horn. So it's slightly different, but it's, again, if we're dealing with this Semitic language that has this root system, one would get the uh, idea that they are linked in some ways. Um, so, this light radiating from Moses. Questions, thoughts? I think turning it into a horn was simply a, <laughs> an anti-Semitic um, vehicle for the medieval period. Okay, so let's put the horn aside then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's leave, let us leave the horn be. Um, light, divine radiance. The Israelites would see how radiant Moses was. And Moses had to put this veil back on when he went in to speak with them. We sometimes say someone's face is a glow. Yes. You look at somebody and say, wow, they just like, they met with some, if you've ever met with a really wise person, you know, and, and you came away and, and someone looked and you said, wow. Mm-hmm. He's really glowing or she's really glowing. There's that sense of the, the intense light. Part of it gets reflected off of it. Mm-hmm. That's you what know, I they say that about pregnant women. Have a glow. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, you know yeah. Mm-hmm. you're in love, you're all like a glow. Mm-hmm. All of these lovely romantic notions. Yeah. Well, love and uh, childbearing. Okay. Pregnant. Back to love. Yeah, hafta. Yeah. 100%. Um. This is an interesting piece. So Ibn Ezra says, this is the most wondrous thing that happens to any prophet anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. This glow, this radiance, this receiving of God's light and that Moses then projects it on Moses's, by Moses' self. Um, another interesting reading of this is that what is the veil supposed to be about? Yeah, that's like they're not Why? deserving or they can't tolerate Maybe he's glowing so much. Okay. Well, it also people can't tell. Right. He's scaring the people. Could he be scaring the people? Actually, could that be what the veil is about? And he has too much God. Ah, go ahead, Judith. Did you have a point? I think it's also a secrecy, a certain Mm. unknowing that is to be maintained. Interesting. So, is this related? This is not related to the custom of a veil at marriage. 
That's the layout. Good question. What's that? That, that's related to the trickery of That's what I'd always so, heard, so you yeah. Make sure that you know who you marry. Yes. Well, that that's the part of the unveiling is because right. of that, yeah. yeah. We never know. <laughs> and do we know who we're marrying? Like. <laughs> veils and masks. Mm-hmm. Everybody has veils and masks mm-hmm. about them. And in a way, this also relates higher power to all of us who have our own veils and masks. So we were just in the holiday of Purim, the time of Hester Panim, of concealed faces, the time, this one book, this whole holiday where God doesn't make an appearance, and yet perhaps God's thumb is on the scales through the entire thing. This is a holiday where we all wear masks. It's assumed that we're wearing masks. That's par for the course. It's the one day in which um, we acknowledge it. That's right. Um, and we are encouraged to, in which our masks and the veils and the layers that we have up between ourselves and other people, um, that those are public and, and those are acknowledged. And silly and crazy and drink too much and dance too long. And yeah. All of that. Supposed to. Yes, you're supposed to. That's right. Yeah. According to this, if you read literally, Moses would be wearing a veil all the time. Okay. So when is Moses wearing the veil is an excellent question. I, I think we it's totally worth pondering. Meg, did you want to jump in? No, not, no. Okay. Okay. Um, so one suggestion, and this is from Gersonides, is that the veil is not a barrier between Moses and the Israelites, but the veil is a barrier between Moses and the spiritual world. That Moses, by this point in his journey, has become so connected to the holier, to the higher realms that are spiritual, that Moses can't help but dwell in them. That Moses has to put on a veil in order to actually come back down and be in reality and be near the Israelites. That Moses needs to disconnect himself from that realm to even relate to the people in this world. That Moses has become so um, connected to all of these things. Uh, it's, it's an interesting sort of inversion of Moses wearing the veil not to scare the Israelites, but rather wearing the veil to be part of them. Like uh, weighing him down, like he's going to blow away. Yeah. Like he's become so otherworldly. Yes, he's so otherworldly that he needs the veil as a spiritual anchor to keep him grounded in this one. Um, but when we talked about the mask, mm-hmm. everybody has masks. Forum is just that most extreme case of make that mask physical mm-hmm. as opposed to everybody covering. So it's a, I believe it's a Hasidic reading of, of Purim where they say that well, there are a number of readings of it. One is that uh, there will only be two holidays that will be celebrated when the Mashiach comes. When the Messiah comes, we'll only have the need for two holidays Yom Kippur and Purim. For in fact, Yom Kippur. In Hebrew, is called Yom HaKippurim, Yom Kippurim, the day that is like Purim. Both of them require uh, that we change what it is that we ingest to essentially escape this world for another one. Through Yom Kippur, we fast, uh, and that's the kind of... Uh, intoxication that we take into our bodies. In Purim, we have that famous commanded, uh, commandment to drink and to party and to celebrate in that way, but both holidays require us to do something that sort of intoxicates us and takes us out of this realm to a different spiritual place. But how could we do without Hanukkah in this country? <laughs> <laughs> 
I guess as far as those particular chassids went, Hanukkah didn't make the grade. But um, an interesting piece about these two mirror images of one another in our uh, in our Jewish year cycle. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. See the one, the one tweak I might make to what you just said is that it's tough to hold certainty. The people know this; they're constantly saying, "What you took us out of Egypt so that we could die in the desert, or die at the sea, or this, or that, or the next thing." That even though we sort of know what's going to happen, we can't totally know. So there's a lot that we have to take on faith. But we keep saying, "Prove it." Yeah, we keep saying, "Prove it." Um, but it seems like the arrival of a certain kind of faith, or the fulfillment of a kind of faith. Um, I might suggest, yeah. To me, this, to me, this conversation reminds me of boundaries and how the veil is like a boundary. And uh, in Purim and, uh, and Kippur, we're sort of transcending boundaries yes. of, of regular, ordinary behavior. Yes, the boundaries. Boundaries, yeah. Um, breaking out of those limitations that we have on our own human condition. But we, we have to go back. But we have to go back. Um, maybe Moses didn't have to, but we have to. Um, the Yom Kippur, that day that is famously the day that is supposed to be the closest of the whole year to death, part of why we wear white and we wear the essentially a mimicry of the burial shrouds. Um, Purim, where the usual social mores and norms are suspended in favor of um, all manner of excess and poking fun at that which is serious. Um, abandonment, yes, both of those do represent a sort of crossing of the boundaries, but the next day we return from them. Um, Moses, it's not clear where he has gone or how connected he is at this point. Um, he may be off in a higher realm uh, by now, and he may not be coming back. Yeah. So... We have God saying, you know, you'll see my back or you'll see mm-hmm. proof that I was here, that I exist in our interpretation. But you won't see my face. Mm-hmm. And we have Moses who becomes very enlightened, mm-hmm. becomes radiant. And now you can't, I'll show you a little bit of my face. You'll see in the glow, you'll get the proof, but now you won't <coughs> see my face mm-hmm. again. So it kind of mimics the story. Mm-hmm. That arc of crossing the boundary and then coming back again. Yeah. Is that why Moses can't go into the promised land? Is it connected to that? Interesting. So this is actually where I wanted to take us toward the end. Uh, Moses doesn't make it to the promised land. We know. Um, The famous story about Moses is supposed to speak to this rock and draw water, and Moses instead strikes the rock. That's 
seems to be given as the rationale as to why Moses can't. There's a lot that Moses gets wrong, I think. Moses, we see him rising up and killing this Egyptian taskmaster. We see Moses, who comes back, who seems to have, have lost the people. The people, as I was speaking about last night, they didn't build the golden calf to replace God. All of our medieval commentators say the people weren't so stupid as to think they were going to build this thing out of gold that was going to replace the God that took them out of Egypt and showed them the miracles of the ten plagues and redeemed them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They know they're not going to manufacture that in a furnace. The people made the calf to replace Moses. Moses had lost the people. Moses had lost the people just in this very same parasha. I skipped over that part to take us to where we are, but we have this real disconnect at that point. Moses then comes back and is totally furious, and what does he do? He smashes the tablets, smashes this thing that he was responsible for imparting to the people, the law, all of these things. Moses is not perfect. Moses is flawed. Our greatest prophet of all the prophets, and it says so in Devarim, in Deuteronomy, at the end of Moses' life, never again would there be a prophet like Moses who would speak to God face to face. That's also a man who's flawed. And That's he, he stuttered. And he had a speech impediment, famously, that he uh, he said to God, I'm not up to the task because I'm, I'm, I don't speak so well. I don't talk so good. Um, <laughs> that this guy with these flaws is the one who has this beautiful relationship with God and gets to have this experience that is in between uh, here, this world, and there, uh, these realms and these palaces, these palatial places that we hear about and speak about in the Kabbalah. Um, even this guy with all of his brokenness gets to tap into and be part of those experiences. Um, the ultimate everyman. Yep. And that's who we are. And that's who we get to, that's who we are invited to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't see ourselves against the backdrop of a certain person who was perfect. Um, the, uh, a standard that we couldn't ever live up to. We might not attain prophecy like Moses has, even though Maimonides challenges us to do so, uh, but we are invited to have these close and beautiful and intimate relationships with God. We are invited to be close by, maybe not see you know, the fullest of all of it, maybe not have our faces altered into this radiance, because Moses was sort of that extreme of this, but we're invited to uh, to follow, to behold the kavod, to take it in in our own lives, in our own journeys, in our experiences, to see what it is from our paths that lift us up out of that, to uh, potentially see that knot on the back of the head to fill in, uh, to see whatever mundane thing that could be in any one of our lives that in some ways connects us to all of these realms, all of these worlds, all of these palatial splendor that we hear in that. Um, in that way, Moses's flawed humanness uh, shows us something of a path forward. Moses gets frustrated. He gets angry. He does impulsive things. Um, we do too. And that doesn't negate being able to connect to holiness through the mundane, through all of these details, through our own lives and our own journeys. Uh, just a little bit of Torah from Ki Tisa for the week ahead. And with that, I will say Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.